If you have your Bible, turn to the second chapter of Acts. That's where we're going to start tonight. We're, we're really at a, a crucial turning point uh, in our study. Now, let me review just a little bit of what we've talked about. I certainly can't fully recap uh, four weeks worth of teaching tonight, but let me just touch on a few things to bring us all up to speed so we're all on the same page. Uh, we have dealt with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And we know him as wind, breath, spirit. Those are all the same Hebrew word that they all mean the same thing, the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the fact that, that uh, it was the same Holy Spirit that brooded over the face of the waters in Genesis. And, and in the very first two verses of the book of Genesis, the Holy Spirit is there. He's mentioned, he's talked about. We talked about the symbols of the Holy Spirit, wind, fire, oil, water, and a dove. And, and each of these symbols give us various aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know, there are not five Holy Spirits. It's just that sometimes uh, He's called the, the Spirit of Peace. And sometimes He's the Spirit of Power. Sometimes He's the Spirit of Holiness. So it, it really kind of depends on the work or the, the ministry that He's involved in doing at the moment. And that's how He's addressed scripturally. And by the way, all of these that we're talking about, they're all on our website, restorationlifechurch.tv, you can go. There's video and audio of every one of these lessons, and you can go back and review them. But we, we talked about also how the Old Testament, uh, the, the concept was in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit came on particular people who had been set aside by God for a unique purpose. Uh, so the concept was that a king received the Holy Spirit, or prophets received the Holy Spirit, or the judges received the Holy Spirit. There were particular people who were chosen with, with surgical precision to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, not in, not in the same sense as receiving the Holy Spirit as we're going to be talking about uh, at Pentecost, but receiving the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament concept of coming upon. And, and, and we see that, that, that Old Testament concept uh, symbolized with the concept of the Holy Spirit as oil. When David was anointed with oil, the oil was poured upon him. And that was the picture of the Holy Spirit being poured upon somebody or, or the mantling. So, you know, receiving the mantle of a prophet. The Holy Spirit uh, uh, comes upon that person for power for a specific purpose. And, and by the way, I just in passing, I just on an interesting side note uh, uh, on this and uh, this concept. In the book of, uh, uh, in the story of Gideon, in the, in the book of Judges, there's an odd twist in the original Hebrew. Now, I'm by no means a Hebrew uh, scholar or anything like that, but just from my study and what I've read, uh, in the English translations, it says that the Holy Spirit came upon Gideon. And that's, that's the way we would normally say it. We would see that, and it's what it says in English, and that's not the, it's not a bad translation. However, from what I understand, it is apparently upside down in the Hebrew text. And in Hebrew, it, it, it looks like it says, and the Holy Spirit drew Gideon on. Very, very interesting concept. That's very different, isn't it? Um, Gideon, you know, you got one Gideon putting the Holy Spirit on like a garment, like a cloak, like a mantle of power. But what it actually seems to say in the original Hebrew is that the Holy Spirit drew Gideon on and went into battle. Uh, almost as if to say it was the work of the Holy Spirit and Gideon was just simply the tool that the Holy Spirit picked up to do his work. And either, either way, it's pretty cool, you know, that the Holy Spirit came upon Gideon or, or he drew Gideon on himself to get something done. Either way, it's pretty cool. But anyway, then, then there was the uh, verse of Scripture from Joel chapter 2 
We've talked a lot about that. It was, it was this, this prophecy that was certainly not unknown in Judaism. It was perfectly well-known passage, but it was just a passage that kind of laid on the clipping room floor of rabbinical teaching because nobody knew quite what to do with it. The, the prophecy said that after the coming of the just one, after the coming of the Messiah, after the coming of Jesus, that there would be this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. Not just kings anymore, not just prophets, not just judges, uh, uh, but, but, but all flesh. And I, I don't know, I, I know this doesn't sound, seem shocking to you as 20, in 21st century Protestantism, but, but you have to think like a person from 850 B.C. Judaism, the way, when that was written, but that, that women would, re, would receive the Holy Spirit. Ooh, you know, it's just, the, you know, not just Deborah, one of the judges, not just special women, but all women could receive the Holy Spirit just like a prophet. That, that children, he went in this passage, it says that children would receive the Holy Spirit and walk in the same power in which the prophets walked. That, that, that young people would prophesy and old people would, would dream dreams. And that was in this passage, but it, it was just there, but nobody quite understood what it meant in a way that, and in a way it was, on, it was actually kind of frightening to them because in their viewpoint, looking at historical facts, when the Holy Spirit came upon a life like Jeremiah or Isaiah or a king or a judge, it, it, it kind of brought all kinds of tumult into that life. So, so to them, the, the idea of the, of the Spirit of God that was thunder and lightning on the mountain of God in, in the, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt or, or there was fire between the cherubim and that fire, you remember we talked about this, it leapt out and burned up the sons of Aaron. The, the very idea that that would come upon you individually, come upon you as a person, was, was just a little bit frightening to them. In, in, the, in the second place, it just didn't quite make sense to them because in their experience, it had always been, it had always happened where the Holy Spirit came on just specific people, not everybody. Then, then we come to that next moment where John the Baptist, standing in the middle of the river, says, says to the listeners on the shore, and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, now we as Pentecostals, we understand that sort of Pentecostal language, but you have to hear that. Try to hear that like you're one of those people standing on the banks of the Jordan River. You know, John says, when Messiah comes, he'll baptize you with fire. And if I'm standing there, I'm like, I'm thinking, okay, I'm just not sure that's actually all good. You know, I don't know about this. You see what I'm saying? So it was kind of a sobering thought to them. And then we talked about the concept of viewing the Old Testament. And this is... This is a way of, of uh, viewing it. This is how I view it, how I teach it. But we, we talked about the concept of Old Testament flashcards. Remember when we talked about that? that? That God would show flashes of things so that when they were realized hundreds of years later, even thousands of years later or in the, in the New Covenant, that they're, they're not entirely new ideas. So, so we would say, when it happened, we'd say, these are things that we, we knew. We know these things, things that had been revealed to a certain extent through these foreshadows. And so that's when you would see, like Peter does, and we're going to talk a little bit about today, where he says, oh, this is that. 
Now, you know, that, that's what's going on because he said, I, I see this and that reminds me of what I saw in the past. So I understand now what this really is. That's the whole idea. So Acts chapter 2, that's where we ended last week. It's where we're going to pick it up today in, in Acts chapter 2. Now, I, I, what I'm going to do first, I'm just going to read the first uh, about 15 and a half verses up through the first half of verse 16. We're going to read it and then we're going to deal with it and we're going to talk about experiencing Pentecost. And that, that's actually our title tonight, Experiencing Pentecost Through the New Testament. How does it feel different in the New Testament? So Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear? There it is again repeated. How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, that's North Africa, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking them, said, they are filled with new wine, with cheap wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, which is nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then the, the subsequent verses of Scripture are, are Peter quoting or, or, or more precisely paraphrasing Joel chapter 2. All right, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. I mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating and digging into it a little bit more. Christianity did not invent Pentecost. Pentecost is not actually a Christian feast or a Christian celebration. It's an ancient Jewish feast that, that is called by the Jews the Feast of Weeks. Now it's called that because this feast lasts seven weeks plus one day. You think we have big potlucks. This feast lasted seven weeks plus one day from the day of, from the day of Passover. So seven times seven is what? 49. Just going to give you the answer anyway, because I have it written down, because I don't do math in my head. Seven times seven is 49 plus one day. That makes 50 days, 50 days total. So what happened was when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, and that's something that's called the Septuagint. And you're reading, you may one day read that and you'll know what it is. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So they took the Hebrew and tried to translate it into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. So when they, when they translated into the Greek, they wanted a word for that Feast of Weeks as it was described in Hebrew. 
Now, we know that every word, everything that begins with the prefix penta is a der derivative of five. You know, the pentagon, the uh, pentagram, the pentathlon. Uh, all of those have something to do with the number five. So, you know, the pentagon and the pentagram, they all have five sides. The pentathlon is a combination of five different sports that they combine into one, one athletic event. So, so the Feast of Weeks lasts for 50 days. That's, that's a multiple of five, you see that? And, and, and so it's the Feast of 50 Days, translated by them as, in the Greek as Pentecost, or in Hebrew, the Feast of Weeks. Now you know what it, what it is. And, uh, and, and, and now you know uh, how long it was from the day that Jesus was, was crucified to the day the Holy Spirit came, 50 days. You know it exactly. And, and there, is a, there is a sense of connection with Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. First of all, as I mentioned last week, it's a, it's a harvest feast. And second of all, it, this, was a, this, was, this was a sense of joy. There was a sense of joy. It, it was a very joyful feast. There was an, uh, uh, a feast of outpouring, a feast of celebration. You know, I, here's the thing, though. On the day of Pentecost, I do not believe, I said this last week, but I do not believe for one minute that that when Peter and the other 119 people in the upper room woke up that morning, that they looked at each other and said, Acts chapter 2, today, 9 o'clock, here we go. You know, I don't believe that, you know, five minutes to nine, they were sitting in the upper room looking at the clock in the back of the room that's, that tells the preacher that he's supposed to let people out to go eat lunch, you know, that one. that There, there was nothing ticking off time. There was nothing counting down to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was Pentecost. The Jewish celebration of a Jewish feast, just as they had celebrated it every year, decade after decade, century after century, for thousands of years. The Feast of Pentecost. So they're there in this celebration, and when the Holy Spirit came, now, now think now, think of what it actually says here. When the Holy Spirit came, the, the sound of that wind rushing through the room comes, the sound of a tornado. Not a hair on your head is, is ruffled by the breeze because it doesn't say a wind blew th through there. It says a sound like a mighty, mighty rushing wind. And there's yet, yet even though the, hair, the breeze is not blowing, there's the sound of a tornado rushing through the air. Then fire appears and separates into multiple tongues of fire, each one visible above every head in the room. Then the people in the upper room began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance and gave them the words. Then what happened was that people gathered. In the, in the Middle East at that time, and really it's still true in much of the, it's very common in the Middle East today, but a lot of buildings are quite open. They, they, and they, they're, doing, they're that way on purpose because they want to catch any faint breeze that, that blows. Well, when there is a crowd like that in and a noise like that in a room that's open, people are going to hear it. And they heard it, and, and news would, would spread. The news began to spread. They, they raced off, and they said, hey, something is happening in that room over there. Something's going on. Something's going on. Come see this. And so quickly, it drew a crowd. Well, somebody finally asked the logical question. When all of this is happening, and this is the question probably most of us would ask. What's going on in there? What is going on? And as they, as they drew closer, the, 
the outside crowd heard those people in the upper room. And we, we dealt with this last week, and I, so I'm not going to go through all of it again, but they heard them speaking in their own languages. It, it, is, not, it is not clear at all. And I'm just saying, uh, regardless of what you believe, whatever you believe, that's fine. This is not a salvation issue, but I'm just saying that it's not clear in the text itself that those people in the upper room were actually speaking those languages. They may have been just speaking in tongues as Paul describes it, speaking in an unknown language that no man understands. But it says that they spoke in other tongues, but it says that the people on the outside heard those languages. Everybody on the outside heard the native language from the land in which they were born. And we did a little experiment last week where we had everybody talk out loud at the same time. And, and I asked Chuck what somebody said and he couldn't tell me because when everybody's talking all at once, you can't figure out what anybody's saying. It doesn't make any sense. And so I believe it was not just a miracle of them speaking, but it was a miracle uh, of the Holy Spirit causing those people to hear in their native languages. So, so there was an operation of spiritual power and giftedness happening at the birth of the church. And the church is born. The living, breathing body of Christ is born in the upper room in supernatural power and the, and the visitation of the Holy Spirit. Well, what happens next is what would, what would happen anywhere. People try to come up with an explanation. And, and here, here's what I found in today's world, and I'm sure you've seen this too. When God does something supernatural, people who don't want to believe will always come up with an explanation to try to give some sort of natural reasoning behind what's taking place. And, and it never makes any sense. So somebody does that and they said, oh, they're just drunk. And we've laughed about that the last couple of weeks because, as I said before, you know, these are uneducated Galileans. And so what they're saying is they're drunk and because they got drunk, somehow they got smarter, <laughs> and that never happens. Nobody drinks and gets smarter, right? It always goes the other way, right? That, that's just the way it is. And so, so anyway, Peter, in his eminent practicality, says, says to them, think now, 120 people in the same room, in, including women, all getting so drunk that they can't talk plainly, but, but even though they can't talk plainly, they're somehow speaking in a foreign language that they never learned, all by 9 o'clock in the morning, and he's saying, listen, there's not enough Thunderbird in all Jerusalem for that. He says, in, in essence, you know what Peter says? He says, that is a stupid explanation. That's really what he says. And he points back to everything that we've studied for the last four weeks, and he says, what's happening here experientially, contextually, in this moment, is that which Joel told us about. This is the wind. This is the fire. This is the oil of anointing. This is the power. This is the dove of peace. It's all on us happening right now in this room. Now, from that moment there on the day of Pentecost, I want to just go forward with other places in the New Testament where, where there's a repetition of some sort of the upper room experience, of, of the Pentecostal experience. And what I want to try to do, pick up on, I want to try to pick up on threads of continuity that knit these experiences together. Now, here's the thing, though. There, there are many ministers in uh, the world today, particularly in sort of mainline denominations, that they're, they're educated in what I would call rigid cessationism. Now, you may not even know what that word cessationism means, but it is a theology that teaches 
that things that happened in the Bible during one phase of biblical history ceased at a certain point in time. That's cessationism, that they ceased. And they teach that at the death of the last apostle, the gifts of the Spirit, as they were in the book of Acts, ceased. That's cessationism. In, in, in the footnotes of the Schofield's Reference Bible, which is, which is really the heart and soul of cessationism, it says concerning Acts chapter 2, and, uh, this is what, he, what it writes. It says, subsequent, subsequent to Acts chapter 2, or following Acts chapter 2, he says, no Christian ever again needs to be asked to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Schofield says, what happened in the upper room to those 120 people took care of it for all of the rest of us until the rapture of the church. Now, before you think that that's what I'm teaching, I want you to understand that is unsound logic. Even without reading the rest of the book of Acts, let's just approach it logically. That doesn't make any sense. Let me explain, explain it like this. I, I know that at a, at a, you know, we're, it's almost 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night, weeknight, and there are probably some of you that may have skipped dinner to be here tonight. You know, I mean, we had a family dinner, but maybe you weren't able to come to that. Maybe you came straight from work to here. And you may be thinking to yourself right now, all right, Pastor Dave, let's just wrap this thing up right at 730 because I'm hungry. Listen, listen, my friend, it is all right. I had a good dinner at our church family dinner right before service, right before I came in here to teach. So it's okay. You say, no, 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 Pastor, I, you, you, you didn't understand what I was saying. I wasn't worried about your tummy. I, I was worried about my tummy. And I say, yeah, but, but you're not listening to my answer. I'm well fed. I'm fine. Be at peace. See, what, what can happen is that there are people in the pews of American churches that are longing for supernatural power to live in the context of this crazy, out-of-control, sinful world in, in which we live. And, and, and if the answer from the pulpit is just simply, be of good comfort. Simon Peter received the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago. That, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's an illogical answer on the surface of it. Beyond that, though, uh, even in the book of Acts itself, it the Bible contradicts this. If that were true... Uh, the, then the issue, the problem is not whether the Holy Spirit's outpouring is repeated in the 21st century or not. The issue that they have to deal with is that it was repeated almost immediately over and over and over again. For, furthermore, the book of Acts shows that it was expected to be repeated. So, so let's look at some of these. This is what we're going to do tonight. Grab your Bible. You can just keep it open. Uh, we're, we're going to skip around from verse to verse. And if you've been in, if you grew up in church from, you know, back in, back way back in time, this is going to be like an old fashioned Bible drill. So when you get to the verse, you can stand up and say, I got, no, don't do that. Don't do this. kidding. But I want you to turn to Acts chapter four. We just went through Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, turn to Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had been arrested. I'm not going to go into all why they were arrested. You can read that on your own. But they had been arrested and they had been admonished by the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Pharisees. They had been told, do not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And so the first wave of persecution on the church begins at, at this moment. They're beaten and, and then they're released. 
And after they're released, they, they, are, they return to the company of these early Christians. And if you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 31, this is their response to this moment. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak of the word, the word of God with boldness. Now, you, you see the challenge, don't you? Here's the deal. Many of those people are the same people that were just in the upper room. So it's only two chapters later that now they're saying what happened in the upper room was great. It was wonderful in the upper room. But to face the adversity and the persecution that we're facing now, we need a fresh anointing from the Holy Spirit. You know, like there's the old joke. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. You know, people say things like, what's the matter with these Pentecostals? Why do they keep asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do they leak? Well, the, the, the answer is yes. Yes, you do. You, whether you like it or not or whether you want to admit it or not, you do leak. You know, life just knocks the stuffing out of you. Anybody discover that in your life yet? You know, the nicks and the cuts and the abrasions of interactions with humanity, you leak, you bleed power. And that's the reason we need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. That's why it's not just a one-time event on the day of Pentecost in, any more than it's a one-time event in your life. It's an ongoing thing God wants to do inside of you. So, so what we see here is there is... There is this baptism of the Holy Spirit in the upper room for these people, but then there is a further work of the Holy Spirit for empowerment in people who have already received the blessing of Pentecost. Because they're not asking when they pray. And I, I didn't read the verses before, but when you, you can read it on your own. You'll see that they were not asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit again. They were saying, we are facing something new here. Uh, we're facing persecution. We haven't done this before. And, and we need something from you, God. And I want you to listen to what they prayed. I mean, look at what they said, prayed. It's very fascinating, and really it's a stark indictment of much of the American church because, you know, there's a lot of us, we, want, we say, I want, to, I want to see the power of God unleashed in my life. But our problem is, so many of our prayers are very self-centered and very selfish. You say, what are you talking about? Well, here's this persecution that breaks out. And these people, you can read it there in Acts chapter 4. They do not pray, God, stop the persecution. They do not even ask for that. They never pray for that. You know what they pray? They pray, God, look at all this persecution. Look what's happening here around us. Would you make us bold? see the difference a self-centered selfish prayer says god make the persecution stop i don't want to suffer i don't want to deal with this anymore but a person who wants to walk in the power of god says god i know i can't control circumstances i know i can't control people but god i want to walk in your power so i'm asking you to do something in me because i feel like i'm not bold i feel like i'm afraid i feel like i want to shrink back but god i want to walk in your boldness so make me bold god make me strong so i can walk in they don't ask for God to protect them. They ask for God to empower them in the face of the persecution. And in response, the place is shaken. 
It says the house where they were, where they were praying was shaken. Listen, if we want a, a, a life-shaking experience with the Holy Spirit, we need to approach it the way they did, not just saying, God, I want you to make my life comfortable, but to say, God, I want you to empower me no matter how uncomfortable this world makes my, my life. The place where they were praying was shaken and they were filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to move on from there. Acts chapter 8. I want you to turn over. This is a very complicated passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 8. And I'll explain why I say it's complicated. So while you're turning there, let me just give you a little background. A, a second wave of a persecution, largely le led by a man named Saul of Tarsus, whom we will encounter a little bit later tonight. This, excuse me, this second wave of persecution now drives some of these Christian Jews out of Jerusalem. They, they just scattered. Which, by the way, I, I, it may have been, may have got, God may have allowed the persecution to take place because he had already told them in the first chapter of Acts that he wanted them to go. He had the command at the end of Matthew, go in all the world. And then he, in Acts 1a, he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And, and, uh, and, and he goes through eventually to the uttermost parts of the world. But you know what, what they did? The same thing we do. When God does something powerful, we like to camp there. And so they were just staying there. And so me may have allowed the persecution just to get them to move. So anyway, whatever it was, but they, they scatter. And when they do, this Jewish Christian evangelist, not one of the apostles, he's just a, a lay evangelist named Philip, goes to the city of Samaria. Samaria. Now, you'll remember, we've talked a lot of, in different Bible studies from the, uh, that we've done about how the Jews hated the Samaritans. So this is a big deal. Philip goes to Samaria, and there he begins to preach, and God gives him signs and wonders. And the people are amazed with these signs and wonders, and they get converted. They receive water baptism. But in that city of Samaria, there is this magician named Simon. Now, not Simon Peter, of course, but uh, some versions call him Simon Magus, or which would be short for Simon the Magician, some translations even call him Simon the Sorcerer. But, but he, has, he has kind of held the Samaritans in awe of his abilities uh, in this sorcery. And they think, in fact, that he is at least a prophet and maybe even the Messiah. Maybe he's the great one, the Messiah that's coming. This is, and he has played on this. He's enjoying this notoriety. Now, here's the thing. This is a complicated passage because it says that Simon, this sorcerer, he also believed and was baptized. Now, the reason that's very complicated is because it means that what he does next, he does as a Christian, which is a very wicked thing. And some try to explain it away by saying, well, maybe he didn't really believe at all. But that implies that somehow that the Bible is confused. And I, I have a real hard time saying that the Bible is confused on this. So, you know, I mean, the Bible says he believes, so I have to believe that he believed. And so, so was he Christian or not? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and be baptized for the remission of sins. So is Simon, let me ask you this, is Simon the magician a Christian at th that point? It's not a, not a trick question. The answer is yes. According to everything we understand about what it means to be a Christian, Simon is a Christian. The only thing is, we, we need to remember that when, when you receive water baptism, you have to be careful about how much stuff we leave on the bank of, of the river. 
that you intend to pick up on your way back up out of the water. You know what I'm saying? You, you wade out in the river, go underneath the water, but you've, you've left your favorite sin on the bank. I don't want that to get saved. I don't want that to get baptized with me. So Simon leaves his pride and his greed and his magic and his longing for control and position on the banks of the river, and he picks them back up on the way back out of the water. So here, look at verse 14, Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized. That's water baptism in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a very important passage of Scripture because it shows that, the, that the, the, the apostolic community in Jerusalem believed that a Pentecost experience was a necessary and important part of the Christian experience because they went down there specifically to pray for them to receive the, the, the Holy Spirit. And if, it, if, it's, if it's not important, if, if, it, if, as the cessationists would say, it only had to happen once in the upper room, then that would render this passage insensible. It, it should have said, if that were the case, it should have said, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they rejoiced and told them, you don't need anything else. That's what it would, should read if, you were, if the cessationists are right. Uh, you know, because it, when you got saved, you got it all. There's nothing else. But that's not what it says, though. It says that when they heard that there was a revival in Samaria, that a bunch of people had believed in Jesus and had been baptized in water, they said, man, that is great that you're saved. It's so wonderful that you've been baptized in water. Now you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two problems with this passage. I want you to look at verse 17. I'm going to give you a little background, and then we'll come back to the problems. At verse 17 just says this. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. That's all it says. Th then look what happened next. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, and I don't know what your translation says here, but in most English translations, including the ESV, which I'm using tonight, it says something like this. This is what the ESV says. May your silver perish with you. I've got to be honest with you. That is actually kind of a prissy translation. Because you know what it really says in Greek? It's much stronger than that. It actually says in Greek, and forgive me, I'm just quoting what the Greek says. Peter says, to hell with you and your money. That's what Peter says. And it wasn't that Peter had trouble with his mouth. He, he meant it. He, he, Peter is saying that is a hellish suggestion. That idea is straight from hell. He says, you, your money, and your suggestion all go back from whence it came. That's exactly the reason why I'm never shocked when somebody who claims to be a Christian, and probably really is, acts in a way that's very, very wicked because it's been that way since the very beginning. Ananias and Sapphira. You know, the only person that was left out of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was Simon the magician. Here's the thing. Simon, 
Magus, he didn't, Simon Magus did not want to receive the Holy Spirit. That's not what he asked for. I, I believe that if, if he had come to Peter with a broken heart and contrite spirit and, and just in honesty, if he said, look, I, I want this baptism. I want to be purified. I, I want to be uh, sanctified. I want power for life. I'll, I'll give you everything I've got for the Holy Spirit. I believe Peter would look at him and said, no, no, keep your money. You can't buy this. Just kneel down and I'll lay my hands on you. We'll pray. If his heart had been longing for that, for the Holy Spirit, for the presence of God, I believe that he would have received it. However, that is not what he asked for. It is not what he asked for. He doesn't say, give me the Holy Spirit. He says, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He asked for this because he is filled with ministerial envy. See, when he, when he, he, he was the big cheese until Philip arrived. Now he's number two. And then Philip begins preaching Jesus and Jesus is exalted. And, and so now Simon's number three. And then the apostles come and he's number four or five maybe. And then the Holy Spirit falls and now he's completely off the chart. He's finished. He is just a somebody and he doesn't want to be just a somebody. He wants apostolic authority and he attempts to buy it. He attempts to have, take a shortcut to get what he wants from God. And it really is what, what he wants from God. He wants the power and the authority. He wants people looking up to him again. Because he wants to be the one to say, I'll lay my hands on you and you'll receive this. So, so the issue here is that he doesn't receive, receive the Holy Spirit. That's not even what he tries to do. But he, he wants to bypass that to leap over into the authority to bestow the Holy Spirit on other people. He, you know, in some ways, I feel, I feel like Simon just chose the wrong thing with Peter. You know, because Peter had his weaknesses. Fear was often one of them. Uh, public opinion was often one of them. But you know what? Money never seduced Peter. If Simon had only Googled Ananias and Sapphira, if he had just asked Siri, tell me about Ananias and Sapphira, he would never have offered money to Peter. Because he'd realize this is not going to work. Anyway, but I'm going to read verse 17 again, because here is the difficulty for us as Pentecostals, uh, and, and I'm going to explain it a little bit more later on. So some of these things I'm going to say, some of you are going to like, man, I'm going to turn him into the AG. He's going to lose his ordination, but, but just hang on. I promise you it's going to be all right. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. That's, that's all it says. That's a challenging verse of Scripture for any Pentecostals, for many Pentecostals, I should say, because it does not describe any simultaneous or concurrent phenomenon that takes place at the same time. That's redundant. It just says they received. What that looked like, sounded like, felt like, nothing. Now, I want you to, I want you to hear my point. In the upper room... There's the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Is there wind in Samaria? Well, not that we know of. Maybe there was. Maybe there wasn't. It's just not recorded. Was there, there, there was fire in the upper room. Was there fire in Samaria? Well, not, not that it's recorded. Maybe there was, but maybe there wasn't. We don't know. There was speaking in tongues in the upper room. Were there tongues in Samaria? Maybe. I think probably but we don't know that. It, it isn't message, mentioned at all. So it's a challenging verse 
of Scripture for us. Now we'll come back to that. Verse, let's get, turn over to Acts 9, verse 17. Uh, we all know, I mentioned Saul of Tarsus earlier. We all know he, he began persecuting the church. And uh, Ananias in chapter 9 is, at one point in time we're going to read, Ananias was a Christian in, in Damascus, and he was sent by God to minister to Saul of Tarsus, which had to be a real fun calling, which we kind of get an indication. We're not going to read that part, but when, when Ananias receives this vision, he says, go pray for Saul of Tarsus. Ananias is like, hey, wait a minute, isn't that the guy that's persecuting us Christians? Uh, you sure you want me to do this? But anyway, that's a different story. But so Saul has gone to Damascus to arrest Jewish Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem in chains to face trial for heresy. And on the way, we know the story. God strikes him down. He strikes him blind. And Paul spends, uh, well, but then he was named, known Saul. Uh, Saul spends, spends three days blind and alone in the back room of a house on Straight Street in Damascus, Syria. And God gives a vision to a man named Ananias and says, go and lay hands on him. So look at verse 17, Acts chapter 9. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, on, on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Now, when... Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was healed. So, so again, there, there's no account that anybody got healed in the upper room. There's no account in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria that anybody got healed. However, Paul the Apostle in receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit is also healed of blindness. Uh, of blindness. Now, certainly temporary blindness because God had just struck him blind. Nevertheless, it's a healing. I, I hope you're beginning to see and understand where we're heading with these. So look at Acts chapter 10. Um, this is a fascinating passage. One, one of my favorite instances of, of, uh, of another Pentecostal experience after the day of Pentecost. So in, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is in the city of Joppa, which is a suburb of contemporary Tel Aviv. He, he's in a trance and he has this vision of a sheet being lowered down, and on this sheet, it's all kinds of non-kosher food. Now, the Bible calls it unclean, but that's, that's what it means. It's non-kosher. And God says to Peter, rise, Peter, have a ham and cheese on, on rye. Well, not exactly those words, but he tells him, get up and eat. And Peter says, Lord, I have never eaten anything that wasn't kosher. You've got to be kidding me. And God says, never call anything unclean that I've cleansed. That vision happens three times. Peter responds the same way three times, and God answers him the same way three times. Isn't Peter just an interesting, interesting guy? How many of you have raised teenagers? Let me, let me see your hand. Have you raised teenagers? God had to tell Peter everything three times. Can you, can you relate with that? Um, all through the New Testament, Peter seems to get everything three times. Just funny, anyway. Anyway, Peter, he wakes up out of that trance, out of this vision, and there, there are these Gentiles from Caesarea knocking on the door. Now, Caesarea was a city uh, named for Caesar, built by King Herod on the seacoast. It was built for Romans who didn't want to live in Jerusalem. And Caesarea is a blasphemous Roman city on Jewish soil. Jews wouldn't even go there because it would make them unclean. In, in that city... 
there's a centurion named Cornelius. So, so he's a Roman. He, he's of the occupation army. And the most hated of all of the occupation army were the centurions. And he's in this filthy city called Caesarea. And God gives Cornelius, the centurion, a vision and tells him to go to Joppa to find Peter and he'll come and tell you the words of life. So, so here are these Gentiles that's, that he has sent standing at the door saying to Peter, come to Caesarea. As a Jew, he, he's not even supposed to go in, inside the city limits. And they're saying, come to Caesarea. And he's remembering God saying, never call anything or anyone unclean that I've cleansed. So Peter goes with them. And he preaches. And while he preaches, something happens. I want you to look at this. It's another, uh, in some ways, troublesome passage. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, he's still preaching. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the, the circumcised, that just means these are Jewish Christians, who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Okay, now, look, this passage is problematic. Can, can, can anybody guess what, it, what the problem is? Here, here's the, here's the, the difficulty with much of our modern-day theology. There is no sense, no indication that these people ever prayed the sinner's prayer. There's no sense that, they're, that they have made a, you know, a responded to an altar call and gotten saved. They're pagans. Now, now, we know that they're curious about the God of Israel because the Bible you know, refers to him as, a, as God-fearing. But, but the truth is they haven't even fully co converted to Judaism. So, so what happens is that while they're listening to Peter preach, the Holy Spirit falls on them, which is a humiliating thing for an evangelist to have happen because he doesn't even get to give his altar call, you know? And, and everybody, while he's preaching, just receives the Holy Spirit. And so they're speaking in tongues, and they're pagans. They're not even water baptized. And, and so you see that? Now, obviously, they believed sometime during that sermon. But the way we think it is, you have to pray that prayer somehow. In, interesting thing. There's one more passage that I would read, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it tonight. That would be Acts chapter 19 at Ephesus where Paul arrives in Ephesus and there, and he asks some Jewish Christians there, he asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Which is a very interesting question to me uh, because it, it seems to indicate that he's saying you can get saved, but there's still something that can happen uh, in receiving the Holy Spirit. But they said to him, they said, we don't even know, know if there is a Holy Spirit. That, that's their answer. It turns out they have been baptized to John's baptism, not, not, not in the name of Jesus. So Paul baptizing, baptizing, baptizes them in water. Then he lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And we're told that they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Okay, now here, here's what I'm trying to show you tonight. Here's the point I'm making. Experiencing the upper room blessing is not a formula. When you try to make it formulaic, you miss the very essence, the very heart and soul of the experience itself. When you say, you do this, this, and this, and then this, this, and this must happen. You've created a formula. And that just doesn't work. There are passages here where people audibly spoke in other tongues, but it isn't recorded that they did that every single time. Now, I believe they did, 
in the assemblies of God. We believe that that, that happens. We believe the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, which, which by the way, you don't get hung up on the initial physical evidence because the spiritual evidence is way more important. Uh, you know, speaking in tongues is just a sign that, that it happened. It's just a symbol to show you that God has done something powerful in your life. But, but the spiritual evidence is that you become a more effective and powerful soul winner, which is what really what God's interested about. You know, he's not going to when we stand before him, he's not going to say, did you speak in tongues? No, he's going to say, what did you do with Jesus? Did you make Jesus known? Did you make Jesus famous? So, so we believe that. But here, here's the thing. We know that there are places where, where people are filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And we're not told whether or not they spoke in tongues. But with all, any place where there's any phenomena that's actually listed, anytime there's a list, the, the, the speaking in tongues was always there. There are sometimes other things that accompany it, but it's always there. That's why we believe it. Uh, but it, in fact, I do find it very, very significant that in Acts chapter 10, it says when the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his household, it says that those other believers that are with him, they said they knew what was happening. They knew that they'd been filled with the Spirit because they were speaking in other tongues. So that apparently was a sign for them that, that, that they had spoken in tongues just like they had. So I believe tongues are the initial physical evidence of the, and that the experience that we're talking about is taking place. So don't turn me into the assemblies of God and say, you need to pull his papers, please. But, but the point I'm trying to make is that it isn't recorded every time. I want you to notice that. There are passages in here where there are other supernatural phenomena. Wind, sound of wind, fire, a building being shaken. But it doesn't happen every time. There are passages here, two at least, in Samaria and in Ephesus, where there are people who are not Christians, and they become Christians, they receive water baptism, and then through the laying on of hands, they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's how they got it. It was through this very sort of orderly process. However, just when you think you've got it, okay, now we know the rules, we know how it works. Then along comes Acts chapter 10, and we see a room full of pagans in a pagan city who receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they're not even water baptized. They hadn't even joined the church yet. They're, they hadn't been in membership class, nothing. They're just sitting there listening to a sermon, and God fills them with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what can we say to these things? I don't know uh, if, 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 how many of you grew up with playing cards in your house uh, when you were a kid. You know, when, when I was a kid, way back in the day, there were a lot of, especially Pentecostal churches and holiness churches that thought it was sinful to have a deck of cards in your house or whatever. But if you grew up playing cards, let me ask you this. Have you ever built uh, a card house? Anybody ever built a card house? Let me see your hand. Bunch of sinners. What are you doing that day? No, I'm just kidding. You know, you, you turn one on one end and you brace it against another and then brace that on another and another and you work your way till you build it up two or three stories and, and you build it up and you look at it and you go, wow, that's great. And then, you're, then your little sister comes along and, and bumps the table and it all falls apart, right? Well, what I think is this. We get all of our theological card houses about the Holy Spirit all built up. We work on it. We hover over it. We get it right, and we look up at God for approval, and we say, there, isn't that right? And God says, oh, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. Now watch this. <laughs> See, you know what the problem is? The problem is the Holy Spirit will not read all of, all of our books about him. 
That's the problem. He refuses to abide by all our doctrines and formulas. He blows where he wills. That's the reason I always say to everybody to, to be, be very, very cautious, be very careful about imposing your formula on anybody else. What I mean is, because it happened in a certain way in your life, don't look at other people and say, this is how you do it. You've just turned a sovereign move of God into a formula. The Holy Spirit is experienced contextually in the moment. He comes experientially. Something happens. An event takes place. So I'm just saying don't get hung up on the rules and the laws and this has to happen and that has to happen. Let me close with this. There was a lady walking through a field and she fell down into an abandoned well. It wasn't a deep well. It was just deep enough where she couldn't get out. It, it, was, it was about knee deep in water, so she wasn't going to drown, but she just couldn't get out. The walls were all muddy and slimy, and she tried and tried and tried until she was just exhausted. And so she started screaming and screaming for help, and nobody comes to help her. Well, finally, as people do in those kinds of situations, she decides that she's going to make a deal with God. And she says, Lord, if you will get me out of this well, I will be the greatest soul winner this county has ever seen. Well, sure enough, just as she, as she says that, somebody leans over the edge of the well and says, can I help you? And she says, I'm trapped. And he gets her out and, and she's rescued. However, unlike most people, she remembers her promise. And she became one of the greatest soul winners the county had ever seen. Do you, do you know how she did it? She'd take people out there in the field and push them down into that well. <laughs> See, the problem with the, with the engaging experience of the Holy Spirit, as wonderful and earth-shaking and room-shaking and powerful as it is, the problem is... We want everybody else to find the Holy Spirit in the same well where, well where we found Him. So all of this to say, really, you know, we say, well, we were baptized in the Holy Spirit in an altar somewhere, so everybody here ought to go to the altar to pray for this. And that's how you do it. Or we were baptized in the Holy Spirit at a camp, so we think everybody ought to go to camp to get filled with the Holy Spirit. Or here's a real good one. We had a really emotional experience, so we think everybody else ought to be weeping when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And if they're not weeping, then we're like, that's not real. You cannot put the Holy Spirit in a box and say, we want you to move, but you have to do it within these parameters. You can't do it. I'm here to tell you, that does not work at all. If we want the Holy Spirit to fill our lives and to empower our church and to energize our services and to make us bold in our witness, we have to let Him do whatever He wants to do in the way He wants to do it. And not only that, that must be enough for us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these precious people who've come to study your word and hear from your spirit and, and to have your grace poured upon them. And Lord, you know those that, that have, have been filled, those that have received this wonderful 
Pentecostal experience. And God, I, I, we thank you for that. I pray for those that have that you would help them to be like those people in the, after uh, Peter and John were, 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 were persecuted who came to you and said, God, I'm not asking you to make my life good. I'm asking you to make me strong and powerful and bold in the middle of everything that's going on. I pray, Lord, that you would give them a fresh infilling of your spirit. And God, for those that, 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 that uh, have not experienced this, this beautiful, powerful moment, God, I pray that you would begin, just begin to fuel that flame that you would been, just help them to long for and, and, and hunger for and thirst for uh, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, God, because we know that there's something more you want to do in us, not to make us any more saved. We can't be any more saved than we already are when we're washed in the blood of Jesus, but to empower us to give us the, the, the strength and the power we need to be able to live in this broken and, 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 and hurtful world in which we live. And God, I pray you would help them to long for that. But God, here's, here's what I'm praying, God, is that we won't say, well, this is how it happened to them, so this has got to be how it happens to me. But God, I pray you just help people to begin to seek your face, to say, I want more of Jesus. I need the presence of the Spirit more powerfully in my life. And God, whether it's at an altar or whether it's lying in a bed at night or whether it's sitting in a car in a driveway or whether it's sitting at a kitchen table right before you eat or right after we finish dinner. But God, I pray that you would begin, you would begin to move in their lives and you'd help them, God, to just surrender to you and to, to relax in your presence and to, to, to let you do what only you can do. And I pray you would let this, let this become a powerful daily reality in our lives. And we pray all of these things in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.